Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark chapter 8, Mark 8. Again, we're walking through uh, some passages in Mark's Gospel that contain unique material that we don't find in Matthew's Gospel. Today we have one of two miracles that appear only in Mark, and we're going to look at uh, this miracle together. As we begin, I'm going to share my screen with you, and as I did last week, I shared these notes uh, over email as well in case that would help you as you track as we track along and uh, probably this week it really will because there are a few maybe it's a little longer than some weeks to, to track everything but we're going to see it today as Jesus encounters a blind man is that the blind men see verses 22 through 30 of Mark chapter 8 the blind men see and this will be the central idea that we see in this text that seeing Jesus as God and Savior is God's gift to spiritually blind people. Uh, The well-loved hymn, Amazing Grace, puts it this way, I was blind, but now I see. And part of God's gift in salvation is helping we who are blind see by his grace. As we track through this passage together, we'll find Jesus in two towns. Uh, First, we'll find him here in Bethsaida. Uh, now, Bethsaida is, uh, it's, it's obviously, as you can see it here in the, uh, the north area of Israel. You see the entire map of Israel here at the bottom, the Dead Sea, at the top, the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is here in Bethsaida. Bethsaida means a house uh, by the sea or house uh, of fish. It's because it's right there by the Sea of Galilee. And then, uh, so the first story, we'll find Jesus here. And then he'll track north. It's some 22 miles to this town here in Caesarea Philippi, uh, named after Caesar himself. So Jesus is going to minister in these two towns, Bethsaida and Caesarea Philippi. As we do this, we'll see a a, a miracle that illustrates what Jesus is doing in the life of his disciples. And the curious thing about this miracle is it seems that Jesus didn't get it quite right. The first thing we'll see is that the miracle Jesus didn't get quite right, verses 22 to 26. And so there are three stages, stage one, blindness, stage two, blurry sight in this blind man, and stage three, clear sight. After that, we'll see how Jesus responds. And then we'll get to the second part, which is the disciples see kind of, sort of. They don't see clearly, but they're kind of at that blurry sight stage in verses 27 through 30. The first stage, like the blind man, is blindness. The second stage is what the people say about Jesus. The third stage, what Peter himself says, declares to be true. Then fourthly, uh, what is Jesus's response again? And then we're going to see, you can see point three here. I'm going to switch on to the next screen. We're going to see how these stories work together. They're actually connected. Uh, Perhaps they aren't at first glance, but as we work through them, I think we'll see that they are. And then for us, kind of that, that last question, how does spiritual sight work? How does it work for the disciples in this story? How does it work in redemptive history? In other words, how is God working through Jesus uh, throughout scripture? And then thirdly, for us, how does it work? And we'll see the importance of prayer, the importance of humility, and the importance of witness. Prayer, humility, and witness. So I'll begin reading Mark 8, verses 22 through 30. I'll leave this on the screen for just a minute. So hopefully uh, that'll help you be able to jot it down if you haven't yet. Mark 8, verse 22. And Jesus and his disciples came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. 
And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Verse 27, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say? that I am. Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Well, today's miracle is one of only two that we find in Mark, but not in any of the other gospels. The healing of this blind man in chapter eight. And then last week we saw where Jesus spit and touched the man's ears uh, of the deaf man. These are the only two miracles that appear in Mark and nowhere else. Now, this story in Mark's gospel follows Jesus' feeding of the 4,000. His more famous feeding, I guess because it's a bigger number, is the feeding of the 5,000. But we know in the life of Christ, Jesus fed 5,000, mostly Jewish people, and then 4,000, a feeding of the Gentiles. But at the end of that feeding of the Gentiles, that 4,000, Jesus corrects the disciples for their spiritual blindness. At the end of that section, In verses 20 and 21, he asks them, do you not yet understand? And then immediately on the heels of this, we find that Jesus with this blind man at Bethsaida. And this miracle, Jesus didn't get quite right. Now, why would I say that? Well, because many times in the life of Christ, we find sort of short records. Jesus healed all who came. Jesus healed the blind, the sick, the lame. And this story, too, would be just a rather small blip on the radar of Jesus' ministry if it weren't for this rather unusual thing that happened. Remember that that question that we asked, what is surprising here? Well, in other instances, when Jesus heals a person, he heals them instantly. There's, There's not this convalescing process. You know, the man takes up his bed and he walks. The blind man sees, the deaf man hears. The dead girl rises. But that's not the case with this blind man. First, we find him in this first stage of blindness in verse 22. Stage one is blindness. Now, Bethsaida is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, means house of the fisher, because that's the main industry there on the sea, people fishing, making their living this way. Now, it's not a large town in terms of the number of people living there, but it's large in terms of size. It's this sprawling village. So It's a village in population, but it's the size of a city in terms of the area it takes up. So when Jesus arrives and people bring this blind man to Jesus, and he leads him from stage one blindness to stage two blurry sight, verses 23 and 24. As we saw last week in chapter seven, here in chapter eight, Mark again places great emphasis on Jesus's touch. In verse 23, he takes the man and he leads him by the hand, and then lays hands on him. Verse 25, he again lays his hands on him. There's an intimate, almost uncomfortable tone to the story, isn't there? One grown man laying his hands, touching another man. There's this very, there's this physically close relationship. But Jesus's touch also represents more than touch. It represents his compassion. No doubt this blind man was led about a lot by people because he himself couldn't see. 
But in this case, it's the great rabbi, the, the local celebrity who leads him. Jesus spits on his eyes, lays his hands, and asks him what's a rather surprising question. If you're the son of God, you created all things, you can raise people from the dead, why do you need to ask, in verse 23, do you see anything? I mean, Jesus is the healer of healers, and yet he almost seems unsure if, if this miracle actually works. Well, is this because Jesus lacks faith? Clearly not. Jesus, as the perfect son of God, always perfectly exercised faith, never doubted in his faith. So there must be another reason for Jesus's question. It's similar to the question that Jesus just asked his disciples, verse 21, do you understand, or verse 18, do you not yet see? So there are clues here, this seeing language that tell us what's going on with the disciples is related to what's going to go on with this blind man. In any case, it's, it's good that Jesus asks the question, can you see anything? I mean, can you imagine if Jesus laid his hands on this man, performs his miracle, and walks away? I mean, if you've ever tried on someone else's glasses, a strong pair of prescription glasses, you know what this man feels like. He's like, I can see things moving, people, but they look like trees walking around. Or maybe you're the opposite. You take your glasses off, and it looks like that to you. So if there are any skeptics around, any people who doubt Jesus' ability, no doubt at this point, uh, they're tempted to just burst out laughing. I mean, Jesus ostensibly heals this man, but the man really can't see. He describes people as trees. It seems that Jesus, for once, has missed the mark in this miracle. Well, stage two, blurry sight, leads us to stage three in verse 25, clear sight. Jesus surprisingly fails to heal the man the first time, so he tries again. He again lays his hands on the man, and this time it actually seems to work. Verse 25, he opens his eyes, sight is restored, and he sees everything clearly. Now, just take a minute, and if, if you have your, your copy of God's Word open there before you, look at verses 23, 24, and 25, and look at the number of words that Mark uses for seeing. Verse 23, do you see? The man looked up. He says, I see. The people looked like trees walking. He opened his eyes. His sight is restored. He saw everything clearly. Mark, in these three verses, makes nine references to seeing, and he uses eight different words to do this. So he's emphasizing something about sight. He didn't just say it. He's emphasizing it in an unusual way. And so we come to the end of the miracle, the only miracle in the Gospels where Jesus doesn't heal instantly. This time he healed in stages, which leads us to Jesus' response, verse 26, a call to secrecy. He commands the man to go straight home and not even enter the village. And before we move on, don't miss the compassion of Jesus in this story. I mean, he's managing a full speaking schedule, needy disciples, hungry crowds, miracles, more people that need to be healed than can even get to him. And yet he takes time for one blind person and he reaches out and he touches him. In a world full of people, in a world of crowds, Jesus sees an individual. He doesn't just see numbers. They're not just kind of factory people coming on, on a conveyor belt and he just heals. He sees an individual and he touches him. I mean, physical touch is such an important part of Jesus's ministry here. 
He doesn't need to touch. He's already proven that. He loves, though, to touch, to heal. Because his ministry, his healing ministry is personal, loving, relational, compassionate. And so he reaches out to the lowly in heart. He reaches out to the lonely. He takes them by the hand, lifts them up, not only heals them, but brings hope to their heart. So we move from the miracle to a rather remarkable conversation now between Jesus and his disciples in verses 27 through 30. So we see in our second main point that the disciples finally see, sort of. Well, the healing of the blind man happens right between two conversations between Jesus and his disciples. The first one is after the healing of the 4,000. Uh, they forgot to take bread with them. And he asked them, don't you yet understand? And now here we are, and, and Jesus asks them who he is. And we have the disciples finally beginning to see Jesus. The first thing we see is stage one, blindness, the first part of verse 27. Jesus has traveled uh, some 25 miles north now to Caesarea Philippi. This area uh, far north of the Sea of Galilee is dominated by Roman influence. It's named after uh, Caesar Augustus. And it's remarkable that the place where this declaration takes place, where Peter says, you are the Christ, it's remarkable that it takes place here. Because this location in particular is known for its worship of the emperor as supreme. And it's here in this village, this town, where Peter makes his declaration. Well, up to this point, it seems that Jesus' disciples have been blind. They haven't seen, and yet Peter makes this declaration. So this leads us to stage two, blurry sight, or what the people say in verses 27 and 28. Mark has begun his gospel this way, the very first words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the central message of Mark's gospel. Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. Jesus has performed miracle after miracle, proving he is the Messiah. He's demonstrated his power over death, over illness, over demons. Yet no one yet has clearly recognized who Jesus is. People can see he's powerful. People can see he's special, but his true identity has still remained hidden. So when, when Jesus asked in verse 27, who do people say that I am? The people see he's important, but they don't know. And so they theorize. Some say he's John the Baptist. Others say he's Elijah. Now, Elijah was particularly fascinating for Jewish interpreters because he was taken bodily into heaven. He didn't die. And so there was this theory that there's going to be this reincarnation, the second coming of Elijah. And so some people theorize that's who Jesus is. Others just say he's one of the prophets. The prophets tell us the Messiah is coming. Jesus' arrival says he is here. The Messiah has come. But the people, including the disciples, remain blind to that. So this leads us to stage three here, and that's what Peter says in verse 29. Jesus has a way of getting to the heart of a person, doesn't he? So he starts out theoretically, hey, who do people say that I am? And then in verse 29, he asks specifically, but who do you, disciples, say that I am? He's moving from theory on the outer fringe to his very closest circle, who do you say I am? And this brings us 
to a key question, not just for this story, but for all of life. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who is Jesus Christ? It's not enough to acknowledge that Jesus is a good teacher or a powerful healer. To say that he is anything less than God in the flesh, the only savior of sinners, is to rob Jesus of the glory that he rightfully deserves. So the question for all of us today is, who do we say that Jesus is? Now, this moment hasn't rushed on the disciples. Jesus has spent months with them, preparing them, leading them, teaching them, living with them. And he asked the question to everyone, but Peter being Peter, it's Peter who speaks up. And bold Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. Well, no doubt the disciples, like everyone else, has discussed that they've discussed Jesus's identity. But this is the first time we've seen a human being make this statement, this declaration about Jesus. The demons have said it because they know, but no human tongue has yet uttered it. Matthew also records this part of the story, not the healing that comes before. And Matthew adds more words from Peter. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds and says, flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. You see, to see Jesus for who he is, is the kind gift of a heavenly father. I mean, we're all born into this world wanting to be king, wanting to rule our own lives, believing that the universe revolves around us and our needs. But when God opens our eyes to Jesus and his worth, when we see Jesus as king, that's not a mystery that we figure out because we're smarter than everyone else. It's an answer, Paul tells us, given by God to the foolish and weak things of this world. And so if you are beginning to see that Jesus is your only hope, to see Jesus for who he is, that's a gift from God. Would you turn from your sin and trust Jesus? Well, this leads us again to Jesus' response, verse 30. He ends this like he did the story before with a call to keep it secret, not to tell anyone yet. So we've looked at both of these stories. Now let's see how they connect or how is it that these stories work together. Now, You've gotten this already. I've hinted at this, but these stories actually make the same point. They're not the same story, but one is a real-life physical illustration of a spiritual truth that's happening in the lives of the disciples. The first illustrates what the second story teaches. So how do they work together? Well, we see parallels. This first stage is blindness. The blind man and the disciples, they're in the same condition. Neither of them can see. The blind man can't see literally or physically, but the disciples can't see spiritually. Jesus calls the disciples in Mark chapter 3, and over and over since then, they've demonstrated they can't see. And so this leads us to the second parallel, stage two, blurry sight. So we've got the setting of the story, and then both accounts jump to this kind of curious thing where people see but not completely. Uh, the writer of the Hebrews uses this language to describe uh, how we see before Christ shadows. We see in shadows so we can see shapes and figures and movement, but we can't see clearly until Jesus comes. And so when 
Jesus says, you know, who do people say I am? They see in shadows. He's one of the prophets. He's like John the Baptist, or he's like Elijah. And we see that illustrated in the man's life, too. He sees people, but they look like trees. The third stage, parallel stage, is clear sight. Jesus heals the blind man, and he can now see clearly. Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? And then he poses a direct question to his disciples. And Peter makes the clearest statement yet about the identity of Christ. And then the response is the same. Jesus commands secrecy, not don't reveal yet who I am. So what we have here, at least in my view, is two stories making the same point. One is a a story of real physical blindness. The other is a story of real spiritual blindness. And apart from Jesus, they can't see anything. So this brings us to the question, how does spiritual sight work? Why does Jesus use this story to illustrate what it means to see spiritually? This is what we said at the beginning, is that seeing Jesus as God and Savior is God's gift to spiritually blind people. We cannot see on our own, and yet God, by his grace, helps us see who Jesus is. So fourthly, how does spiritual sight work? How does spiritual sight work? Well, one thing we see clearly in this passage is that spiritual sight is a process of revelation. So even when we have uh, miracles in Scripture or moments in Scripture where someone is radically beautifully converted. So like Paul on the road to Damascus. That's after thousands of years of redemptive history. Paul had met Christ in the scriptures. He just didn't know who he was yet. And so in our stories today, there's this three-stage process. Blindness, total blindness, blurry sight, partial sight, and then clear sight. But this isn't to illustrate that this always happens in this exact process for every person. But the process of revealing Jesus as God's son is one in which God progressively reveals his son to us, but we also in this life never completely see. So we can see Jesus for who he is and yet never exhaustively know him. Paul describes it this way in 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, often read at weddings, known as the love passage. Love endures long, is patient and kind. But near the end of that passage, Paul writes these words, and he tells us we can never see completely clearly in this life. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see Jesus face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. So there is coming a day for all of us where even when we see Jesus for who he is today, we will one day more fully, more completely, in fact, perfectly know Jesus. And so we're going to trace the way this works in three stages. One for the disciples, secondly in history, their history of redemption, and thirdly for us today. So up to this point, the disciples have been completely blind. They've been following Jesus, but there have been moments when other people saw Jesus much more clearly than they did. Like the woman we saw a few weeks ago, the Syrophoenician woman in chapter 7. She's a Gentile, and yet she knows more about Jesus than his disciples seem to at the moment. And now there's a moment of clarity. Peter boldly declares, Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. It's like, finally, guys, you get it. But not really. 
Because the next story after this is Peter rebuking Jesus for saying he's going to have to die. And then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So even when they see, they don't really see. So they're in process. They're not quite there yet. Well, how does this work in redemptive history? So beyond what we see in the disciples, Jesus is lifting the veil from the Old Testament, Old Covenant revelation. History has this, this shadow over it. God's word predicts a coming Messiah, but we haven't seen him yet. His identity until Jesus remains veiled. We know he's coming, but we don't know who he is or what he's like. And so Jesus takes this moment and he's, he's removing the veil from the edges of history. All creation has been groaning like a woman waiting in childbirth, like, come on, get here. But when Jesus gives his life for sinners, this curtain, this veil is torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus' power in his death demonstrates that his death, burial, and resurrection open this veil, open access to God that hasn't been here before. And so from that moment forward, the moment when Jesus dies, God's people have clear access to the throne room of God himself. This is why the writer of the Hebrews says, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the, blood of, by the blood of Jesus. We didn't have this opportunity, we didn't have this access, and we certainly didn't have this confidence before Jesus. So for now, now for God's people, there's no place we fear to go because Jesus has gone before us. We can access the very presence, the throne room of the eternal creator, the holy God himself. So if that's how it works in redemptive history, how does it work for us today? How does spiritual sight work for us? Well, we're all born into this world like the disciples are before this story, completely blind to who Jesus is. And yet God, by his grace and by his spirit, gives us eyes to see Jesus. So how is it that this happens? It's through people leading other people to Jesus. So in the case of the blind man, it's his friends taking him to Jesus. But it's Jesus who does the work. So like us, or, or like the blind man, we should lead people to Jesus so Jesus can do his work. And this moves us to three specific responses. The first is prayer. Pray for God to open eyes to the gospel. If you have children, or if you've ever tried to reason with anyone, you know it's not something that simply one more logical mind can convince another less logical mind of. It's something that God's Spirit must do. Any knowledge we have of Christ is a gift of God, and not because of anything, any wisdom that we bring to the table. So we pray that God will open our eyes to help us understand and that he'll open the eyes of our children, he'll open the eyes of our friends, our acquaintances, our neighbors, our loved ones to see Jesus, to increasingly know God better. So the first thing we should do is pray. The second thing this should move us to is humility. Humility. I mean, if it's true that only God can open a blind person's eyes, this means that when God helps us see, it's God's gift. It's not because we're smart, because we're wise, because we're bright. In fact, God's word tells us it's just the opposite. God uses the weak things of the world to confound the mighty and the foolish things of the world to confound those who are wise. 
God takes foolish people and makes them wise by his grace. So this means that God's people of all people should be humbled by grace as God leads us to see Jesus for who he is. Prayer, humility, and the third thing is witness. Witness. Because God opens eyes through the faithful witness of his people. You see, it's not within our power to make people see Jesus. But it is our witness that leads them to the cross of Christ where God's spirit can open their eyes. And the, the, the way Jesus closes both of these stories is interesting. He says, be quiet, don't tell anyone, be silent. But the flow of our responsibility is the exact opposite. By the time Jesus leaves his disciples and goes back to heaven, his command is the exact opposite. Tell everybody who I am, even to the ends of the earth. So the flow of our obedience is the exact opposite of the disciples' obedience in this story. We should be telling everyone and leading anyone we can to Jesus and praying for God to open their eyes. So as we close this morning, I want to just share a final word of encouragement with us as a church. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13 that we see Christ now, even now, as through a glass, darkly. So we can see him, but our humanity, our, our old nature, our sinful nature still clouds our vision a bit. But there will be a day when we know him face to face as we are known. This means that today we're still a little bit like the disciples. I mean, we recognize Jesus as king one moment and we turn around and we do something incredibly stupid or incredibly sinful. We completely miss him the next moment. Would you ever have this feeling like, God, how can I know these things? How can I see what's in your word and turn around and do that? And it's in part because of what Paul says. We know him, and yet we don't fully know him yet. So our lives should be filled with the pursuit of knowing Christ. So if this is true, we see him, and yet we don't see him completely yet, what should we do? What's one thing you can do this week? Open your Bible tomorrow morning or this afternoon and read. Read and pray. Pray for God to use his word to reveal Christ to you. And then take that word with you wherever you go. And so we carry the word, and I mean, it may be your literal Bible, but I mean, carry it with you in your mind, in your heart, in our meditation. So it's like, Every time that God uses his word, he, he, he's, he's like he's taking a cloth. We've got these, these grimy glasses. And, and our glasses are covered with this film. And God's word is like the cleaning cloth. And every, every moment that we get into God's word, he takes the cloth of his word and he, he, he reveals a little more clearly who Jesus is. It's, he scrubs a little bit of our, 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 our blindness away. He removes the film from our spiritual eyes. God's word by God's spirit does this for us. So we don't know Jesus completely yet, but we can know him more and more and better and better until the day we see him face to face. So dig into the word to know Christ and let God remove that spiritual film from our eyes. And then let's take that word with us to work. Take that word with us in our parenting. Take that word with us in our exercise. So 
less frequently people see us and more frequently people see the kindness, the love, the grace, the humility of Jesus himself. Jesus removes the blindness from our eyes, but we're all still in process. One day though, we will know him face to face as we are known by him. And oh, that will be a glorious day.